Hi, you know, when it comes to mercy and justice issues, it's so easy to fall on one side or the other. So you might be full of uh, grace and compassion for people, but you might end up compromising on truth. Or you might be passionate about truth and righteousness, but you leave certain people feeling condemned. That's not how it was with Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He exuded mercy and he acted justly. And in a minute, we're going to see this when we look at a story about Jesus that I think will help us as we seek to follow him. But first, I asked my wife, Emma, to share a story from when she was involved in post-abortion counseling. You know, abortion is one of those issues that's so easy to get wrong, you know, where we uh, need to act justly and speak up for the unborn, but at the same time be full of mercy towards the mother, as Sue Zeely so graciously conveyed in last week's message. One of the Bible verses she quoted was from John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that was really what led us to start a pregnancy crisis centre over 25 years ago in the UK. It was run by several ladies in the church that I was pastoring at the time, and they were primarily involved in counselling and education, and it was mainly to unbelievers. And Emma was one of those counsellors. Uh, so here she is with her story. A lady came to us for counselling. She had recently had an abortion and was suffering with extreme pain, loss and sorrow as a sense of what had taken place. She was not a Christian. We began, me and a lady, a 12-week course called Recovery, a journey that takes you through post-abortion counselling. In one of the sessions, we invited her boyfriend to come along. One of the exercises we did was to draw a circle and they were to pick buttons to represent different people in their lives who they were close to or those maybe they felt angry with. One of the buttons that the lady picked was of her baby. We then asked the boyfriend to do the same thing. He at that point really had no emotion or sense of what had taken place. As he started to do the same thing and pick up the buttons and place them in different positions, he picked up the button of the baby. It was at that point that he just broke down, realizing what had taken place. As we were nearing the end of this 12-week program, in one of the sessions, the lady came to us and told us that she'd had a dream and asked if she could talk to us about it. She'd always known that her baby had been a little girl. She just felt that in her heart. And she told us about the dream that she was walking along and she could see a man coming towards her, holding a bike with a little girl sitting on the bike. She said that this man had the most amazing eyes. They were full of kindness. As she looked, he spoke to her and said, she's with me now. You don't need to worry anymore. I'm going to take care of her. She then asked us, what did that mean? So we were able to talk to her and said that we felt that that was Jesus and that he was reassuring her that he was taking care of her little girl now. A few years later, after we'd moved to the States, I got a letter from this lady. She wanted to thank us for the journey that we'd walked through with her, but also to let us know that she'd married her boyfriend and they now had two beautiful girls. The Bible says 
a bruised reed I will not break, and a smouldering wick I will not snuff out. I just think that's such a beautiful and redemptive story. Now, on the one hand, you've got the boyfriend being gently confronted with the truth, uh, coming under conviction as he held that button in his hand and realized it was a person, you know, which really is the mercy of God. And then you have the mother who must have experienced such love and compassion over those 12 weeks as she came to terms with what she had done. And it led to this amazing dream and interpretation, which again was just evidence of God's great mercy. And we don't know how the story ends. I mean, praise God, they got married, they had a family, but we don't know whether they came to faith or not. But then that's not really the point of the story, is it? It's a bit like the story I want to share with you now from the Gospels. It's about the woman who was caught in adultery that the Pharisees brought before Jesus for judgment. And you can find it at the beginning of John chapter 8. It's usually uh, sectioned off with an explanatory note which says that many of the early manuscripts of the New Testament didn't record this particular story. And the manuscripts that did don't seem to agree on where it should be placed. I mean, some even have it in Luke's Gospel. But that doesn't make it invalid. It just points to the fact that all these stories were originally communicated in oral form before they came to be written down. And the vast majority of New Testament scholars have no problem believing that this is a historical account. It's consistent with many of the other stories that came to be written down. And actually, there may have been some cultural reasons why this particular story was omitted. So I feel confident in sharing it with you now as one of those early stories concerning Jesus. In John's Gospel, it follows the time when Jesus was teaching in the temple courts during the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're told that his teaching divided people. Some were saying he must be the Messiah, but others like the Pharisees, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted him out of the way. And so in many ways, the story we're gonna hear fits that context very well. Let's just read it. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. You know, you can just imagine the drama of this scene, can't you? A great crowd of people are sitting around Jesus, listening to his teaching, when suddenly they are interrupted by the arrival of these religious leaders who drag this poor, terrified woman into the middle of the stage and present Jesus with a dilemma. This woman, they said, has been caught 
in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? And they think they've got him, right? They're trying to force Jesus to choose between mercy and justice, knowing that whichever side he came down on, it was going to land him into trouble. Because if he upheld the law and chose justice, then the crowd could well have responded by stoning this woman to death, which was forbidden under Roman rule. But it still happened, as evidenced by the stoning of Stephen later on in the book of Acts. But for this to happen in such a public place, no doubt under the watchful eye of Roman guards, then surely it would have led to Jesus being arrested. If, on the other hand, Jesus chose to disagree with Moses, their great lawgiver, and showed mercy to this adulteress, like, you know, her sin didn't really matter, then he would be unjust. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah who was known to be known for his righteousness. And so Jesus would be discredited in front of the crowd. So what would he do? Would he choose mercy or justice? Because either way, he would lose and his opponents would win. It was a trap. The line had been drawn. Are you with us, Jesus, on the side of righteousness? Or are you siding with the woman and therefore condoning her sin? What's it to be? Are you going to condemn or condone, right? You can imagine, can't you, the tension mounting as all eyes are on Jesus, awaiting his response. But Jesus isn't going to be pressured or controlled. He makes them wait. He bends down and starts to write with his finger in the dust. It'd be interesting to know what he wrote, wouldn't it? But, you know, I think we can all learn something here about waiting. You know, not reacting, not, not allowing others to pressure you into giving decisions or answers. Come on, Jesus. What do you say? The crowd are waiting to hear your answer. They want to know if you're the righteous one. So will you condemn this woman or not? Jesus just writing in the dust. I wonder if he wrote the word hypocrites. Because what seems to be clear is that these religious leaders cared neither for mercy or justice. I mean, if they truly cared about justice, then where was the man who was involved in this adultery? As D.A. Carson writes in his commentary, he says, Adultery is not a sin one commits in splendid isolation. One wonders why the man was not brought with her. Because after all, the law of Moses dictated that both should be put to death. So these accusers were themselves guilty of injustice. Right? They, didn't, they didn't care so much about upholding the law as getting rid of Jesus. And so they kept pressing him. Come on, what do you say, Jesus? Right? What should we do with this woman? Which side of the line are you on? And then Jesus stood up to face them and said these famous words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What did he just do? He removed their dividing line. He didn't say that the law of Moses was wrong, just that if we're going to get serious about it, then we should all find ourselves guilty, right? If you're going to point the finger, you must expect three fingers pointing back at you, right? If you're going to judge others, then expect to be judged by the same standard. Which of you is sinless? Why don't you step out of the crowd first and throw the first stone, he says. You see, suddenly, the whole focus of this drama has now shifted from Jesus to the religious leaders. What are they going to do now? 
Who would dare to pick up a stone when the Bible says of mankind, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. All eyes are on them now. All eyes except for Jesus who stoops down and continues to write in the dust. He takes no pleasure in their humiliation. But you see, where are all the righteous people now? They didn't feel so righteous anymore. They'd hoped to shame Jesus before the crowd, but now they are the ones who are shamed as they all leave one by one from the oldest to the youngest until the stage is empty, leaving this accused woman with Jesus, the only one who is without sin, the only one who could have cast that first stone, but he didn't. Instead, he showed her mercy. Where are they, he asked. Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she says. Then neither do I condemn you. And that's, of course, when we remember what he said. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But then notice there that while he doesn't condemn her, neither does he condone her sin. Right? He doesn't just overlook her self-destructive lifestyle. He's not saying it doesn't matter, you know, just live and let live. No, he says, now go and sin no more. He calls her behavior sin, but he doesn't condemn her for it. He forgives her. You know, being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. Forgiveness means it does matter, so much so that this woman had to be rescued from its penalty. And so we might wonder then, well, where was the justice in this? We see mercy here, but how was justice done? But then think about what it cost Jesus to stand up for this woman. N.T. Wright put it like this. He says, Jesus has put himself literally in the firing line from which he has just rescued the woman. A few minutes earlier, this terrified woman had been expecting a brutal violence and a painful death. But because of his actions, it was Jesus who was now going to experience that on the cross. Because that is where all this is pointing. It's to the cross, where at great cost to himself, Jesus was willing to suffer and die in this woman's place and in your place and mine. It was on the cross that justice was done, where Jesus, the righteous and sinless one, paid the penalty for our sin so that like this woman, we could be forgiven and go free. Right? That is where we see God's mercy and justice. We see it supremely through the cross. As it says in the Welsh Revival hymn, On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's what this woman experienced. Imagine being in her place. Imagine being able to walk away from that scene, forgiven, free, with no condemnation. As uh, Kenneth Bailey comments, he says, she knows that Jesus's opponents will be back with a bigger stick and that Jesus is in process of getting hurt because of what he is doing for her. She is the recipient of a costly demonstration of unexpected love that saves her life. How would she feel, do you think? How would she feel towards Jesus? How do you feel? Because her story is our story too. 
Do you think this changed her life, her behavior? Did she become a follower of Jesus? You know, we don't know. We're not told how the story ends. Some people ask, well, you know, where was her repentance? But you see, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 4, he says, can't you see that it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance? It's kindness. And this woman experienced the kindness of God. Is that what people experience when they meet us? Is that what people say about us? You know, wow, such kindness. I want you to know that when you come to Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've done, however much guilt or shame you may feel, it doesn't matter how other people may view you, when you come to Jesus, he won't condemn you. He didn't condemn this woman and he won't condemn you, right? When you come to Jesus, you will find kindness, mercy and forgiveness. And I just pray that that will characterize his church as well. But you know, for that to happen, it's so important that we know where we stand in this story. You see, are we standing with the Pharisees drawing lines where it's us and them calling out other people's sin? Or are we standing with this woman as grateful recipients of costly love and mercy? There used to be a phrase that uh, Christians used a number of years ago, love the sinner, hate the sin. I think uh, it was someone misquoting St. Augustine, uh, but it was thought to be a clever way of calling out sin while still communicating that you love the person. You know, because after all, we know that God hates sin, but he loves people, so we should do the same, right? And so that's how some Christians try to relate to the world around them and especially where the LGBT community were concerned. It was love the sinner, hate the sin. And I have to confess that many years ago, I said it myself. It just seemed to be a, a neat way of expressing grace and compassion without compromising on truth and righteousness. You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. But can you hear how that sounds? I heard Preston Sprinkle talk about this recently. He said, it's like you're saying, you know, here I am, I'm perfect, you know, glowing in all my righteousness. You know, I'm not broken. I'm up here and all the sinners, you know, they're down there. But take heart, poor sinners. Right. I will step down to love you. I don't like your sin, but I still graciously will love you anyway. That's what it sounds like to people when they when they hear love the sinner, hate the sin. Can you see how condescending that is? Instead of love the sinner, hate the sin, how about love the sinner, hate our own sin, right? Take the plank out of our own eye, admit to our own brokenness, and then invite other broken people to join us in following the only one who is without sin, the only one who can take away our sin, and that is Jesus. And anyway, Jesus didn't tell us to love the sinner. He said, love your neighbor. He wants us to treat people, all people, as our neighbors. May God help us all to do that as we seek to walk with him. Now let's go and demonstrate the kindness of God to this world. God bless you.